Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today we are talking about a different kind of U.S. policy, foreign policy. There are countries outside the U.S., and we're going to talk about them. So today we're going global to talk about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. In recent months, the Russian military has amassed troops near the border to Ukraine, as well as in Crimea, the Ukrainian region that Russia seized in 2014, and in Belarus, a close Russian ally to the north of Ukraine. The Russian forces have artillery and tanks and anti-aircraft systems, and the amount of effort required for this sort of mobilization is making a lot of observers worry that a Russian invasion of eastern Ukraine could be coming. So on Wednesday morning of this week, uh, President Biden ordered an additional 2,000 troops to Poland and Germany and 1,000 to Romania. Uh, The move was meant to reassure NATO allies as tensions in the region are growing. And while Ukraine is not part of NATO, and I feel like that's important to emphasize here, it has been vocal about wanting to join, and that has infuriated Vladimir Putin and the Russian regime to no end. So it's a massively complex situation with a really deep history behind it. Uh, and so instead of having me bloviate about it, I thought I'd call an expert. Mark Galliotti is the director of Mayak Intelligence, a London-based consultancy firm, and is an expert on Russian security and politics. He is an honorary professor at the University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies, and a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. Mark, welcome to the show. Good to be here. So let's start with the actual situation on the ground right now. So what has Russia been doing in recent months militarily? And, and is what it's doing sort of different from things it's done in the past? It is different. I mean, what we've seen is a pretty huge buildup of material around Ukraine's borders. First of all, it's a lot more than we've seen in the past. There was a, another big buildup last spring, where some people thinking, oh my gosh, war's about to start, or an escalation anyway. This time, though, it's it's much more substantial. Now, there are people talking about like 120, 130,000 troops. That's not entirely accurate, certainly as we speak, in that actually what we have is there are a lot of troops there, but also in some ways it's the kit for these troops. So it's it's the tanks, it's the armoured fighting vehicles and so forth. Because the point is, once you've got them there, it's much easier to then send in the guys and just have them get in the tanks and, and drive off. So it's, it's, you might say, it's the skeleton of a force of 130 odd thousand. But also what we've seen that is different from in past such uh, build-ups is there's all the, what you might think of as the backup. I mean, sort of soldiers talk about the teeth and the tail. Last time, it was essentially all teeth, no tail. So yes, it was all very scary. There were, there were tanks and guns there, but there weren't the, the field hospitals, there weren't the fuel bowsers, the big stocks of ammunition, all the stuff that you actually need to have a real offensive. This time, they have all that, which means either they are absolutely planning for a definite military operation, or they might plan a military operation, they're giving themselves the option, Or they realised that when they tried to bluff the last time, people precisely pointed to the lack of all this backup and said, aha, that's why it's a bluff. And they're just making damn sure that this time it's going to be a really good bluff. Were there any sort of precipitating actions on Ukraine's part that seemed to to provoke this? Uh, I'm not asking that as a sort of this is Ukraine's fault, but were there any sort of spurring actions on the Ukrainian side that, that might explain why Russia is doing this? 
I think what it comes down to is it's not that there's a particular specific, oh, they did that, they said that, and therefore all this follows. It's more that when viewed from Moscow, first of all, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, when he was first elected, I think the Russians thought, okay, he's someone we might be able to find some common ground with and, and, and do deals with. Well, A, Zelensky got fed up with the Russians for some fairly understandable reasons, but also he got squeezed by his own nationalist flank. So he felt he couldn't really make any concessions and quite the opposite. He then turned against various uh, public figures, politicians who were, I don't want to say pro-Moscow, that's making them sound as if they're quizlings, but much more inclined to, towards reaching some kind of an agreement with Moscow. So I think from the Russian point of view, he decided, OK, there's, there's, there's no way we can do anything, any business with this guy. And then more generally, there is a sense that the West is in something of disarray. You have an American leadership that really is desperate to pivot to domestic issues, but also China. You have a Europe that is thoroughly divided with, with Brexit, with the um, end of the, the, I was going to say the reign, the era of Angela Merkel in Germany, who was very much the kind of pivotal figure who held it all together. And with France's President Macron, so desperate to basically assume the mantle of the number one statesman of Europe, that frankly, he is being quite divisive. He's in, in some ways trying to put a bit of a, a break between Europe and the United States. So I think for all those reasons, there was that sense of, well, we've been stuck in this stalemate for eight years now. Maybe this is a good chance to give it a good push and just see if we can shake out some kind of concessions from Ukraine and from the West. One sort of timing question I had just as an American is it seems like from 2017 to 2021, Putin had the most uh, sympathetic American president he could possibly hope for. And and so one sort of timing question I had is, is why do this now? What is the percentage in doing this under a U.S. president that's more hostile to him than he had a little over a year ago? Well, this is a point when probably about half of your entire um, audience will, will, will come to hate me when I say <laughs> that, look, my experience you know, with the Russians and certainly with a lot of conversations in Moscow, including with people in the foreign ministry and so forth, is they really did not feel that they benefited from the mm. Trump era. I mean, first of all, they never thought Trump was going to be elected. And again, this, this, is, this is classic mirror imaging. Russia is a quote-unquote democracy. In other words, yes, there are elections, there are people putting um, little pieces of paper in ballot boxes, but ultimately the system works out you know, what the result's going to be. And although, I mean, they knew that it wasn't quite the same in the States, but there was an assumption that actually American democracy was also pretty well managed. I remember once a guy from the Russian foreign ministry before Trump's election saying, the American establishment will not allow a Trump to be elected. Well, famous last words. When Trump came in, yeah, I mean, he had this, this kind of weird fanboyishness towards every single dictator he met, not just Putin. But the point is that never actually manifested itself in, into policy, not least because basically Congress took over Russia policy. And the irony is that by the time Trump left office, US policy towards Russia was tougher and more hostile than it had been at any point since the end of the Cold War. There was a sense with Biden that, first of all, Biden's Russia policy really was to have as little bandwidth as possible spent on Russia. And he really didn't want, he just wanted Russia not to be a problem because he had other things he wanted to concentrate on. But there was also a sense in the Russians that look, Biden is a grown-up. He's someone that we can, we, we can make deals with and those deals will actually be followed through. So again, I think they misread American policy, just as they have you know, for years misread Ukraine. From their point of view, this was a good time because they thought, look, surely America's not really going to care about Ukraine. My understanding also is an important context for sort of why Europe is reacting to this, this buildup the way that it is now is that there's, there's a huge sort of European oil and gas reliance on Russia and a complex relationship having to do with that and also their feelings of obligations to Ukraine. Can, can you explain why, why say, sort of, Chancellor Scholz and, and Germany and, and Macron and France are, are particularly worried about this, perhaps more than, than even Americans are. What, what we got in the situation is, that, first of all, the European Union, whatever its strengths and its successes, when it comes to 
kind of old-fashioned hard security issues is absolutely nowhere. They have no real capacity, they have no unity, they have no sense of where they are. There are individual European militaries which are relatively capable. Um, really, I mean, now that Britain has gone, essentially the French military is, is, is the primary one. And I remember once having a conversation with, with a person from the French Ministry of Defence who was actually quite bothered about Brexit and losing Britain, which is not something you usually expect to hear in Paris. But his view was precisely because when, once the Brits go, then any European military operations will be kind of dreamt up in Brussels, blessed by Berlin and fought by the French. <laughs> so you know, this is a real problem. Actually, Europe doesn't really have much of a sort of security capability of its own. Secondly, as you say, there is a very heavy dependence not in you know not everywhere but but through most of Europe on particularly Russian gas and even countries that don't actually buy Russian gas they are dependent on the overall gas price so if all of a sudden the gas pipelines get switched off then everyone's prices skyrocket and then there's also deep deep divisions within Europe about kind of where Russia fits because you've got countries like Poland very very hawkish and who essentially see Russia as an existential threat, this ravening bear who, given any chance, will come and try and chomp its way through Europe, which I, is a point of view I, must admit, I, I find hard to credit myself. You've got countries like Germany, which have you know, pretty much encoded into their DNA now a reluctance to get involved in anything military and a belief that military force doesn't actually solve problems and therefore wanting any way to, to try and negotiate their way through this. You have France, which, as I said, is really looking at this as an opportunity to show leadership within Europe. And then you have countries like Italy and Spain, for whom thinking, well, this isn't, this isn't really a problem for us. You know, they're much more worried about, for example, the threat of migrants coming from North Africa. And as far as they're concerned, that's where the real security threat to Europe comes. So I think the, the fact that they, they, there is no real capacity and there is no real unity, which is why, in some ways, Europe is not really speaking with a single voice. And what's happening is individual countries are instead pushing their own policies with, with Britain also taking a very, very um, hawkish line at the moment in terms of support of Ukraine. Why would Putin want to do this? What, what is in it for, for Russia in a, a military invasion of, of Ukraine or alternately a feint of a military invasion of Ukraine that is sufficiently serious that people have to respond to it? Well, the thing is, we're not talking about Russia. Mm -hmm. This is the interesting thing. If you look at the opinion polls, not only are Russians themselves in, you know, have no enthusiasm for any kind of a war. It's worth mentioning, you know, Crimea was a, a, a particular chunk of territory that as far as pretty much every Russian, whether they love or hate Putin, thought was rightfully Russian. And it was Russian until the 1950s when it was transferred to, to Ukrainian control. But that, that was a one-off. Everyone thought that was that was right and proper that it was done, and frankly, most Ukrainian, uh, most Crimeans, sorry, actually genuinely wanted to become part of Russia. This is totally different. Donbass isn't special for them, and instead, they do see the Ukrainians as their I don't know cousins, kind of, but part part of the family. And the idea of seeing Ukrainian cities burn is really not not something that people are enthusiastic about. So it's not about Russia. It's about Putin, and it's about this sort of small circle of people around him who dominate this country. And if you look at them, they are essentially all the kind of last gasp of Homo Sovieticus, the, the people who didn't just have their early kind of childhood and education in the Soviet times, but also their early career experiences. They're all members of the Soviet elite. They'd made it there. They thought basically exactly that they were made. They thought they knew the way their life was going to be. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing collapsed. And end of empire is hard. It's hard for nations. I mean, one can question whether Britain's really fully internalised the end of empire. And this is after, what, 50 odd years. France likewise, and probably soon enough, America's going to have to go through this in, in a different way. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that it's difficult. But the trouble is for this particular generation, these increasingly paranoid old men, it's gone through, it's metastasized from what have we lost to who took it from us. And these are people who genuinely believe that the West is hostile, who genuinely believe that the West is denying Russia its proper place in the world. They're trying to hold Russia down and that they're trying to undermine their regime. You know, when we support, for example, you know, anti-corruption activists like the opposition leader Alexei Navalny, who Putin had poisoned and then put in prison, 
they don't see that as us just simply standing up for what we think of as just natural human rights. They see that as a sign that the West is trying to use this to undermine the regime. And let's be honest, when you are a corrupt, kleptocratic authoritarianism, then precisely support for anti-corruption activists, support for free press, all of that does, does subvert the regime. So they see that they see themselves as actually defending. They see that they think they're defending Russia. And when it comes to Ukraine, Putin is a product of his era. He doesn't really think that Ukraine is a different country. There's an interesting kind of notion, I think, and a lot of Russians feel it. It's almost like there's this kind of Slavic family. There's the Belarusians, there's the Russians and the Ukrainians. And the Belarusians are like this, the Slavic Scandinavians. <laughs> They're, you know, a little bit less emotional, a little bit cooler, very efficient and so forth. Whereas Ukrainians are like the Slavic Italians. Good food and so forth, very excitable, very passionate, but also deeply incompetent, but nonetheless part of the family. And so I think from his point of view, there's that sense of, well, you know, Ukraine isn't a real country. Of course it can't go. But also there is that sense of if Ukraine goes westwards, he's still got this old Cold War mentality that if, if it's lost to us, it's gained by the others. And, you know, he, he says himself, he's worried about the thought of NATO forces being based in Ukraine, of NATO missiles there. He talks about, well, you know, missiles like near the city of Kharkiv could hit Moscow in five minutes and that kind of thing. In, in reality, these are very, very implausible scenarios. But the point is, this is a view of a bunch of old men who are still kind of can't quite get over the fact that they're no longer running a superpower and who also are increasingly surrounded by people who basically tell them what they what they want to hear. I think this is one of, for me, one of the scarier things of the Putin system is Putin himself is a rational actor. He's a rational human being, not a nice one, but a rational one. But the trouble is, if what he's being told is misleading and inaccurate, he can make some really stupid and dangerous decisions, even while being rational about it. So I think this is it. I mean, I know it's a very long answer, but I think the trouble <laughs> is you've really got to try and crawl into the deep, dark interstices of Putin's brain to try and understand why it seems to make sense. And a final point is we know that Putin is obsessed by his historical legacy. History is one of the few things he reads. When he meets historians, he asks them, how are you going to, they're going to be writing about me in a hundred years time? Which, you know, first of all, what a deeply uncomfortable question to be asked by the despot of your country, a man who has people poisoned or put in prison. Um, but secondly, it gives us a sense of where his head is at. And I think from his point of view, you know, he's 69, he can rule for some many years to come politically, but he's probably getting old and, you know, he's getting tired. I think, I think it's fairly obvious that he is tired and bored with much of the job. Last thing he wants is for his legacy in the history books to be the guy who basically lost Ukraine, the guy who rolled over and let NATO and the West have their way. So I think this is also about him feeling this is maybe, you know, I wouldn't say his last chance, but one of his last chances to stand up for Russia and make sure that Russia asserts its real place in the world, forces the West to acknowledge that. And in the process, that's what, what gets him into, you know, so that means in the history books, he's a chapter rather than just a, a paragraph. We're going to take a quick break, but we're, we're going to stay talking about the history books and, and Putin's place in them. Um, and I'm going to ask Mark a bit more about some of the history that's motivating both Russia and Ukraine's actions here. Uh, stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. And we're back. So we've we've alluded to this a lot so far, but but obviously the Russian and Ukrainian governments have had a very complex, often hostile, sometimes captured relationship since Ukraine uh, declared independence in 1991. And I want to cover as much of that as we can, but but there's a lot to cover. So I want to break it down. So first, can you walk me through a bit what Russia and Ukraine's relationship was like before Putin took power? So in in the Yeltsin era in the 90s, in the immediate post-Soviet period, what were the paths Russia and Ukraine were taking and, and how did they sort of differ or intersect with each other? When the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991, well, I mean, it didn't so much collapse, it's just that you know, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last Soviet president, just literally signed it out of existence, realising that, it, you know, frankly, its time was over. In some ways, you just had these countries suddenly formed. And what tended to happen is existing elites simply you know, refashioned themselves. A lot of them were, frankly, old Communist Party hacks who said, no, no, I'm a convinced Democrat do vote for me. And because they tended to have the money and the connections and the political machines, they tended to win. And this is what we, what we saw initially in, in Ukraine, just as we saw in, in Russia. So you, you have this new country called Ukraine. But the thing is that the, the Soviet system had been one in which the, the economies and you know, all the systems had, had so thoroughly interconnected. So actually, the Ukrainian economy, which has strengths as well as some weaknesses, was used to being totally interconnected with those of Russia and, and above all, but also the other post-Soviet states. So it was always going to be quite difficult. I mean, on the one hand, you had a very, very passionate sense of Ukrainian nationalism. But on the other hand, you had a whole load of really very deeply practical ideas about, well, okay, but if we're going to have an economy that is going to be sort of halfway functioning, you know, we have to be working closely with the Russians. Many of our people have got families that cross the border. And in some ways, what's really interesting is that, frankly, Ukraine went through a whole series of attempted and failed attempts to really try and create a common sense of Ukrainianness. I mean, it was it was impressive in that although many of the, though not all of the leaders who were elected turned out to be deeply corrupt and or incompetent. But the point is, they had elections. They had kind of, you know pretty much real elections. A little bit of manipulation, but you know. Which country doesn't? Um, but the point is that when when people lost elections, they handed over power. Again, I mean, there, there are other countries where, where, where leaders who lose elections could, could learn a few lessons from that. Sure. So, you know, it, it, it was kind of rolling along, but there, it was always that sense of this is a country still in potential. And the irony is, if I can just kind of drag us back to Putin. I mean, in many ways, Vladimir Putin is the, is the patron saint of modern Ukraine, because by annexing Crimea and then interfering in the Donbass, he created this national backlash, which for the first time truly knitted together all these different communities and you know, created that common sense of where Ukraine is and where it wants to be, which is more you know, westward looking. And when one looks, for example, at the election of Zelensky, whereas in the past, you can look at leaders and generally they, they either drew their power base from the Ukrainian-speaking west of the country or the Russian-speaking east. With Zelensky, you had someone whose appeal actually transcended those old boundaries and suggested exactly that there was something new. So that kind of division really came to the fore in the, the 2004 election in Ukraine. And, and that 
at least as an outside observer, maybe there were there were bigger blowups before that, but seemed like a, a moment where where Putin's attitude toward Ukraine really came to the fore. What led to that election being so divisive and leading to sort of the poisonings and and mass protests that that characterized it? Again, I think in some ways the answer is much less to be found in Ukraine and much mm. more to be found in Russia. I think it was more that by that point, Putin, you know, he he had come to power in 1999 to 2000. And his first years, he was busy basically trying to keep the oligarchs in his own country down and, and put them in their place and reassert the role of the state and so forth. And he was also fighting the Second Chechen War, you know, a very vicious, small internal war against, uh, you know, again, people who wanted to rise up against Moscow. And then sort of by the time 2004 came along, he's beginning to feel more comfortable in his position and beginning to look beyond Russia's immediate borders and towards its, its sphere of influence. And in a way, that just happens to unfortunately coincide with an election in which you have a candidate, Yushchenko, who, who is you know, clearly a very fiery, passionate, charismatic, but also westward-looking figure. And again, from, from Putin's point of view, there's that sense of no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't get to make that particular choice. And again, this is not a man who actually wants to like rebuild the Tsarist Empire or rebuild the Soviet Union. It's not as if he wants to occupy these countries or run them. But he does have a very clear sense of sphere of influence. He says, no, 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 you know, post-Soviet states, with the exception of the Baltic states, these are our Nash, these are ours. And therefore, this idea that, that someone can just come along and just, just because he gets elected, thinks he can actually reorient Ukraine, no, that's not going to happen. So in some ways, I mean, 2004 was something that, in, in hindsight, we can actually say, you know, should, should have tipped us off about what would happen when Ukraine seriously tried to reorient itself towards the West. And, and just to, to recap some of the basic events uh, for, for people who, who might not be as familiar with that election, what, what did Putin actually do to, to intervene in that election? Well, the main thing is precisely that the opposition candidate, Yushchenko, actually was poisoned, as you mentioned, which wasn't and didn't seem to be intended to try and kill him. But rather, you know, it, it really disfigured him and, and left him, I mean, A, obviously very ill, um, but also, I mean, his face looking looking very sort of ravaged. And again, I think it, it says something about the kind of the Russians, the, the use of poison in particular is usually, as much as anything else, shall we say, a theatrical event. It's not just simply meant to kill someone or, or knock them out. It's meant to actually do so or sort of have an effect that is going to have a much wider political impact. Then at the same time, we saw a lot of Russian propaganda and a lot of Russian covert money. There is this Russian term, Chornaya Kassa, black account. In other words, sort of secret funds going to the sort of the traditional Russia-looking political party and the, and the so-called, I mean, it's called the, the Donbass Mafia. It's not really, not a mafia in, in the sense that we think of it most of the time. It's more just simply the kind of, the bosses, the big businesses, the political managers of, of Eastern Ukraine. But again, they were the people that Moscow felt comfortable working with. And Moscow did everything it could to ensure that they actually were, were in a position to fight a strong political battle. So again, this is the thing that from their point of view, you have a combination of interference through manipulation, money and disinformation, and a direct attack against the opposition candidate. And and this is it. It's it's a kind of very much what we think of as Soviet style. What what the, what the KGB used to call active measures, in terms of covert political operations. So, two thousand four, we have this incredibly eventful and violent, intrigue filled election in Ukraine. A pro Western, a sort of Russia skeptical president takes office, and then in twenty fourteen, everything seems to to blow up again. Walk us through sort of that path. Obviously, a lot happened from 2004 to 2014, but how do you go from from one kind of anti-Russian street revolution to another a decade later? At that time, Ukrainian politics was still very formless. Ukraine was poor. Ukra I mean, Ukraine is still poorer than, than, than Russia in terms of you know, GDP per capita and all the other various indices. There was a considerable degree of dissatisfaction, and therefore people are quite prone to listen to whoever comes along next and says, ah, I can solve all your problems. 
so you have these people like Yanukovych, the guy who's in charge at that point, but they're always going to be quite weakly based. They, they don't have really strong traditional ties. You don't have that kind of electorate that says, I have always been a Yanukovych man and I will tell my kids that that's who they should support or anything like that. You know, there, there isn't a strong party structure and, and that kind of thing. So you have this sort of quite, quite volatile political base. And you also have a clear desire from Ukrainians either to orient towards the West for cultural and political reasons. They want to travel. A lot of Ukrainians, after all, are, are, you know, are in fact working and had migrated in, into Europe. And you also just simply have a, you know, a very pragmatic view of, well, look, where is the money at the moment? And the answer is, it's in Europe, not, not in Russia. So there is this agreement to have what's called an association agreement with the European Union, which is not membership. But on the other hand, it, it could be one early step on the way towards eventual membership. But the point is that it, 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 was, it, was about, uh, it was about trade, it was about travel, it was about all these things that actually the European Union does quite well. The thing is that not, no one had really appreciated at the time. And remember, I mean, this is, agreement is a massive, thick sort of agreement, which is drawn up by international lawyers, not people who are detailed, you know, have detailed knowledge and are not steeped in, in the, the politics of the region. And in sort of late summer 2013, you suddenly started getting some Russians who up to that point had been quite relaxed actually about this agreement because they thought, look, ultimately it's fine. But, you know, Ukraine is still going to need our gas and will still sell grain to us and so forth. People started thinking, hang on a minute, this agreement precludes Ukraine being part of kind of Putin's own equivalent to the European Union, which is the Eurasian Economic Union. And that's when things begin to get problematic. Because again, I think from the point of view of the Kremlin, what they thought was just some kind of political economic deal, they suddenly think, no, this is an EU gambit. This is the West trying to steal Ukraine from us. Now, Yanukovych knew that his own people wanted this agreement. And at first he was still committed to signing it until basically the Russians on the one hand threatened him. I mean, some people actually suggest that, that they threatened him in the sense of, you know, hey, we've already poisoned one Ukrainian politician. Do you want us to make that too? I mean, literally, I've heard that sort of suggested. But at the same time, actually, the Russians offered a, a, a massive economic deal to basically try and buy Ukraine back. And Yanukovych was, was, was willing to deal. The Ukrainian people were not. And that's what triggered the Euromaidan revolution. But again, this is it, because, because Yanukovych didn't really have any strong political base of his own. Yeah, he could bring in thugs from his home district and such like. But essentially, this is a truly pivotal moment when it's almost felt to Ukrainians like that was going to be a once-in-a-generation decision, whether you look east or west. So yeah, the, the, the Maidan rebellion in 2014 seems seems incredibly important here. So you have Yanukovych, who who was also, we didn't mention this before, but was was the other candidate in 2004, uh, the, the sort of more pro-Russian candidate. So he's toppled. How do we get to Putin responding by annexing Crimea and, and supporting militias in the Donbass? How does that become his strategy? I mean, at first, frankly, the Russians are clearly deeply taken aback they didn't think that the Yanukovych regime would fall. Because, you know, Yanukovych seemed to have control of all the various levers of power, the army, the police, and, you know, protesters, what have they got? Well, they just got you know, a bunch of young hippies in the main square in, in Kiev. So they didn't expect the regime to fall. When it did, that came as a sort of horrifying shock to them. And that's when they suddenly thought, hang on, Crimea. Because the thing about Crimea was, although it was Ukrainian territory, the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet, arguably Russia's most important fleet, is on Crimea. And because it, you know, they, they, they had a deal with Ukraine, sort of allowed them to basically rent on a long-term basis territory for their naval bases and their barracks and so forth. But there was a real sense that actually this new regime might simply say, well, we're not bound by, by the old, old treaties. So there was a sense they, they thought they, they could be kicked out. There was a belief that one could then see NATO naval bases either in Crimea or elsewhere on the Ukrainian coast. And also there was this sense that actually that Crimea is precisely, it's, it's really a Russian territory. A lot of 
Black Sea Fleet officers, when they retired, they would retire and then go and live in Crimea because it's got a lovely climate and it's all very scenic and such like. So there's actually, there's a lot of Russian passport holders in Crimea as well. And it seems to be at that point that, that Putin decided, OK, we're going to have to take Crimea. Probably also with the knowledge that it would do his domestic popularity no harm whatsoever. The interesting thing is there was no thought about also then moving into the Donbass or anything like that. I mean, when that operation was carried out, it was just about Crimea. And it was, one has to be clear about this, a textbook operation that was so easy that it created this kind of momentum. Huh. Well, if we could do this this easily, what else could we do? But secondly, um, I mean, I think that the, the more one looks at what happened in the Donbass, the more it's clear that it wasn't that the Russians actually just simply said, right, we're now going to destabilise this, this region. It's that there were a whole bunch of other actors, nationalists, all kind of adventurers, who thought, seeing that there was also you know, a lot of protests against the, the new regime in Kiev in the Donbass, because this has been a part of, this, this has been Yanukovych's party's old sort of stronghold, so there are a lot of people who are really quite worried and sort of thinking that, yes, there were extremists. And there were. There, there were amongst the, the genuine democratic figures within the Maidan. There were some unpleasant neo-Nazi types as well. And they thought, well, we're, you know, we're going to go in there and we're going to help them out and we're going to sort of basically form them. And so you actually had this whole sort of movement of people in. And Moscow's thinking, this might be useful. This might not. Let's just see how it goes. And as it looks as if at first there is going to be a, a genuine sort of rising, I think that's when the Russians thought, well, 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 we'll give them a little bit of help. You know, we'll, we'll encourage a few people. We'll send some weapons their way because this could be useful. Not because they ever cared about the Donbass. This is the big tragedy of the Donbass. I mean, this is a region which is to a large extent, you know, it, it's post-industrial. It's, you know, ex nasty smokestack, you know, coal and iron and steel industries, which now have, you know, no real sort of economic future. So it's not actually as if Moscow's thinking, oh, yes, we want ourselves a bit of that. But it was always seen as a lever against the new regime in Kyiv. It was a way of basically showing them, look, we can mess things up for you. Don't think that you can just break away from our control like that. We can cause you trouble. They got sucked in. This was never meant to be a major deployment. This was never meant to be anything long term. And it was never about the Donbass. But bit by bit, they got in. And then once the, the, the Ukrainian government, the new Ukrainian government started getting its act together, and it looked as if it was going to be able to reimpose its control on the Donbass, they thought, well, by this point, it was like July. We'd look pretty stupid if we just pulled out now. So we better double down. They surged in troops smash the Ukrainian forces. And in a way, really, I mean, although the battle lines have moved, it's been stuck since then. We're going to take uh, one more break. Then Mark and I are going to talk a bit about where the situation goes from its current depressing reality and what, if anything, can be done to deter an invasion. We'll be back in a sec. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. And we're back. So this is this is kind of a, a unfair question to ask, since predicting this is, is kind of tough. But where things are today, how likely are you feeling a, a, an actual Russian incursion into Ukrainian territory is now? Um, and and to, by that, I mean, obviously not Crimea, but but an actual Russian troops and material going into Ukrainian land that they haven't already seized. I mean, I'm still optimistic. Uh, it's an interesting kind of, of division that takes place. The, the military wonks are very pessimistic. They think it's almost certain that there will be an invasion. The political wonks tend to be much more uh, optimistic. I mean, I, I reckon it's about 30%. It's absolutely a possibility. But it's, I don't think Putin's plan A. It's his plan B or his plan C, some kind of military escalation, if he can't get... Well, what he wants or enough of what he wants 
by political means, including essentially the intimidating presence of a large number of Russian troops and heavy metal on Ukraine's border. Well, let's talk about some of those sort of strategies that are being used right now to try to to avert conflict. So if Russia is partially doing this to try to extract concessions, what are the kind of concessions they seem to want? And is there is there a deal that could be made with with Ukraine and, and with the United States that would satisfy them and, and avert conflict here? The only honest answer I could possibly give is I don't know. <laughs> However, given that that would pretty much close down this conversation, let me say that I, I, you know, I can tell you what I think is the situation. The reason why it's worth stressing that is because precisely we're in a situation where we're still trying to divine Putin's real goals and above all his appetite for risk. I mean, he's trying to put the, the give the impression that he has this very maximalist list of demands. I mean, he basically what he wants is Ukraine to be forced into a state of neutrality, which means that you know it'll always be vulnerable to to Russia. Guarantees that it'll never join NATO, even though back in two thousand and nine NATO had promised that Ukraine and, and Georgia would become members. And also, he wants NATO basically rolled back to where it was in 1997. So in other words, countries which already have become members of NATO would either be kicked out or more likely would become some kind of second class NATO member or so, or something. Now, my view is that he must know that he's not going to get that. Now, to some people, that proves that war will definitely happen, that they feel that he you know, made this ridiculously over the top ask because then he knows he's not going to get it. And he can say, well, I tried, but because you're not giving me what I want, I have no option but to escalate. Well, I think that this is all a bit too elaborate for that. I mean, given all the talks that have been taking place. No, my view is that, uh, you know, he is like like any good um, sort of street corner trader. If you know you're going into a process of haggling, you start with a ridiculously high ask because you know that you're going to be haggled down. Now, the thing is, in a way, there's, there's these two angles, two axes of what he's looking for. One is about Ukraine. And the other one is about the broader issues of European security architecture and NATO. Because as far as he's concerned, they're actually connected. I mean, the reason why Ukraine's status is so important is precisely because he doesn't trust NATO. And this whole NATO expansion, as far as he's concerned, has been not only against Russia, but also actually was part of a, a con. Many times in late Soviet and indeed in, in early post-Soviet times, Russian statesmen, including Gorbachev, were promised that NATO would not expand. The thing is, these are verbal promises. I and mean, unfortunately, we're in a position where, and I don't think it's actually very helpful, the kind of official Western response is, well, you know, you never had a piece of paper, you never had a treaty or a document, so what are you complaining about? The trouble is in like Russian political, but also business culture, that sense of like, you know, verbal deals and deals agreed on a handshake actually matter a lot more. And when we say, well, yeah, we might have said it, but because we didn't give you a piece of paper, it doesn't count. What for someone like Putin hears is don't trust anything we say, because we will just lie to you and then, you know, ignore, ignore what we promised. So, you know, as far as he's concerned, this is, this is you know, this is a long term issue. And, and he mistrusts NATO and he thinks that NATO, you know, we, we can tell him that it's NATO's a defensive alliance until we're blue in the face. So I think it's a question of trying to work out how we can, we can essentially reassure Russia without precisely giving away things that, that we shouldn't be giving away. I mean, we can't, for example, actually say Ukraine will no longer be allowed to join NATO, even though, if we're honest, Ukraine is not going to join NATO for at least another decade. Probably, you know, Putin would likely be dead before that could happen anyway, the best will in the world. But maybe what we can do is say, well, OK, you know, look, it's going to take time anyway, but we will guarantee that we will not put NATO troops or security architecture on, on Ukrainian soil. So, you know, Ukraine might come under the NATO's umbrella of, of, of defence, but in peacetime, at least, you don't, you're not going to have to worry about that. So this, you know, this ways of trying to package things that are actually relatively reasonable. The thing is, exactly, we will not really be able to give them very much. But what we're probably going to have to do is what little we give, which will often just be things that are just realistic and are going to happen anyway. 
we're going to have to package them up nicely in really big flowery wrapping paper with a nice silver bow. Because Putin's going to have to both feel that he's made some kind of advances and also have to be able to tell his own people that he has triumphed. My big concern is that we in the West get so caught up in precisely the deal and that sense of not wanting to give away anything we don't have to, is that effectively we face Putin with a sense where he feels he has a choice between escalation and capitulation. And if he absolutely feels he's in that place, he will escalate. Because I think, you know, it's interesting, we, we, we've just had recently the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And if one looks at his writings and, and speeches about this period, it's clear that he very much blames Mikhail Gorbachev, the reformist Soviet leader. And he thinks that it was because Gorbachev was weak. He was weak to his own people and he was weak to the West. And that's what brought down the Soviet Union, the superpower. And he's clearly determined he's not going to be that weak himself. I suppose my, my one question about, about making a deal, and, and it does seem preferable to, to war in, in almost every circumstance, but I think there's a fear that if Putin feels he can't trust us, there's a fear we can't trust Putin. And so if we offer him a concession this time, he will do a similar ramp up or attack Georgia again, or otherwise sort of lash out in ways that, that try to extract additional concessions. Is there a way to avoid it becoming sort of like a blackmail cycle um, as opposed to sort of a lasting settlement? It's a fair point. And I think in, in some ways the answer is that there is, a, there is a strange and perverse legalism to Putin. Again, this, this is a man who absolutely is willing to lie, cheat, blackmail and murder. I mean, not personally, but have people do it. On the other hand, this is a man who does feel the need to observe the forms you know, he may rig elections, but he will hold elections. He won't just simply declare that he will change the constitution to allow him to, to stay in power. You know, there will have to be a constitutional process and debates and a referendum and, and so forth. And it's interesting that his demand at the moment is precisely he wants pieces of paper. You know, he wants formal written guarantees precisely because he doesn't trust the West. Well, this gives us the opportunity also to look for formal guarantees from Putin. And on the whole, I mean, there's debate about some of these sort of aspects. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying he always always observes treaties. He has broken them, including when when he he went and, and stole bits of Ukraine. He was breaking something called called the Budapest Memorandum. But nonetheless, I mean, I think that that does give us some kind of of security. Secondly, there is the fact that. If Putin doesn't really, I mean, Putin gets something, but not that much from from this. You know, it, it it probably will demonstrate that in fact the West is not quite as weak and and sort of easily sort of pushable around as he fears. But also, it might demonstrate that the West isn't quite as implacably hostile as he believes. And look, the third point is there is a degree to which the honest answer is we're going to just have to deal with it. Because the bottom line is, if we talk about war, what are we talking about when we talk about war? We are talking about Ukrainians fighting Russians. There is, after all, no thought of US or NATO forces fighting in Ukraine to help defend Ukrainians. I mean, we, we've made that already explicitly clear. We'll give them weapons, we'll give them support, we'll cheerlead from, from the, the, the sidelines. But ultimately, we would be fighting a war for our own sort of sense of integrity and moral duty to the last Ukrainian which is, I think, a fairly indefensible position for a start. And secondly, look, the honest answer is that actually our levers on Putin are quite limited. Big talk about sanctions. Frankly, Putin has spent the last seven and a half years turning Russia into as sanction-proof an economy as he can manage. And they've done a pretty good job of it. They have massive financial reserves. You know, in the West, we talk about government debt. Russia has huge foreign reserves. So it has a big war chest. They made a decision to, in a way, go for security over economic growth. So essentially, the Russian economy is pretty stagnant. 
But on the other hand, it's also really hard to, to knock over the way you, we, we're getting some sort of loose talk about, you know, devastating impact and so forth. No, can't do it. The real thing that we could do that would absolutely devastate the, the Russian economy is not buy any Russian gas or oil, which is fine, except that it would mean you know massive increases in prices and just frankly also massive shortages, particularly of gas in Europe. It's winter. You know, how many people are willing to say, I'm perfectly happy for granny to freeze to death, so long as I show that nasty Mr. Putin what I think of his policies towards Ukraine? There is a point where we have to be realistic. We can do harm to Putin, absolutely. And if he escalates, we can and we should. But on the other hand, if he is absolutely willing to take that hit, well, there's nothing we can do. I mean, the reason why he probably won't escalate in Ukraine is not so much because of Western sanctions. It's because the Ukrainians will fight. Ukrainian military is stronger than it has ever been. It's one area of Ukraine which has reformed more dramatically than any other. And, you know, it's not just Ukrainian soldiers. I mean, yes, on, on the battlefield, the Russians will win. But if they're going to try and occupy territory and particularly go into cities, they're going to face a nation up in arms against them. And the only, and it's a parallel that, that the Russians would absolutely hate, but the only real parallel I can draw is what happened in Ukraine during World War II, when the Germans invaded and they faced this massive mobilized partisan resistance. Well, okay, this is going to be a slightly different war, different age and so forth. But nonetheless, that's the kind of challenge. And frankly, 120, 130,000 troops, 150,000 troops, it's enough to break the Ukrainian army on the battlefield. It's not enough to break the will of the Ukrainian people and certainly not enough to pacify them. That is what is really going to keep Putin out of Ukraine. There's always uh, hours and hours more to say about the situation, but but I think that... You should never uh, make that gets... invitation to an academic. You know, we can fill <laughs> hours and hours with the sound of our own voices. As, a, as a, a journalist who has to keep to word and or sound counts, I'm going to cut you off here. But thank you so much for, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. It's fun. Thank you so much to Mark Galliotti for coming on the show. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host, Dylan Matthews. We will be back in your feeds next Tuesday. We will see you then. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.